You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but to some, it is merely fiction. Join our conversations as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show or to contact us directly, visit us online at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome back, listener, to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. You're listening to episode 81. Who would have thought? Last week we talked about how crazy it was we hit episode 80, and now episode 81. It's just going to it's just going to keep feeling like this forever. I have a feeling until we hit like episode 100, we have like a really big celebration. But before we get started, I'm going to quickly remind you guys, listeners, go ahead and hit like, subscribe, the heart button plus sign, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your platform of choice is, do that. And above all, the thing that we like the most is number one, written reviews on Apple Podcasts. We love seeing those. That helps us out tremendously, not just algorithmically, but also just like, you know, emotionally, it's nice to see some people saying that they listen to the podcast, they enjoy it, and they're getting something out of it. And number two, we like hearing from you guys on our website, betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. And speaking of the website, I'm, I have a confession to make, not just to you, listener, but to Matt and Nathan. I, we did not talk about this during our, our, uh, our pre-show, pre-show warm-up. Um, I have messed up greatly in regards to the website. If you have been uh, trying to send us messages on our website for like the past two weeks, at least we have not gotten them because quietly the website that I made for the, for the podcast broke in the background. Uh. And <laughs> I was wondering, I was like, man, it's so, it's so crazy that our, like our normal people who write into us every week have not been, uh, it was not radio been... silence. Mis- I know it's... mistakes were made, but not by me. <laughs> well, I was reminded of it after um, after uh, faithful podcast listener Caitlin Flowers uh, brought uh, some coconut cake to the office for Matt's birthday, and it and I was, was thinking, delicious. It was delicious, and I, I didn't have the heart to say anything, but I I, I thought mm, I shouldn't tell her that we haven't got we, if she's been writing to the podcast, we have not been getting it for like two weeks. Sorry about that. Yeah, but it's fixed now. So go ahead and give us that. Give us that in in the future, and. Um, just goes to show you that there's there's things going on that you know you don't always see as the listener well very good well that kind of like goes into what we're talking about today there's not just things going on that you don't always see as the listener is that i think all of us have like a limited knowledge base and not we, me i know everything <laughs> that, that's right well the the curse of the modern age is that we feel like we know so much more than we actually know because we have everything at our fingertips. We can just, you know, summon Siri or Google or whatever and find find out the answer. Well, Gandalf, what was that little cartoon that you, the one from the 90s where you're talking, you showed me, a, it was a couple of years ago, but as technology increased, it only made the person like more foolish, stupider. Freakazoid. Yeah, that's uh, it. Yeah. From Warner Brothers. Yeah, he, he like got sucked into the internet, had the entire internet downloaded into his brain, but instead of making him like an ubermensch, it turned him into an idiot. Yes. Yes. It was, it was prophecy. That was from the nineties. That's right. So there are limitations on knowledge and we are often talking about when we read Genesis, 
it was written at a time people were experiencing the Exodus. But something we need to talk about today is that when the people were living Genesis, they had no knowledge of the Exodus, or for that matter, Exodus through Revelation. And that's what we really want to talk about today. Other than, other than, God, not, tell it, other than God telling Abraham, hey, it's going to happen. That's right. The only things that they know are what have been revealed. And then other than that, um, again, they probably believed things about the world that their cultural surrounding believed. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to be back in Genesis 17, and we're going to look at verses 3 yeah, through 8. It's, it's neat for me, before we get into the text, it's neat for me how so many of the uh, later Jewish traditions around Abraham cap mm -hmm. capture the context. In other words, for all of the things... So, for example, it's, it's interesting on the one hand, you mentioned uh, reading Genesis while you're living the Exodus. One thing a mm -hmm. lot of later Jewish writers do is they find all sorts of creative ways that Abraham could have kept the Mosaic law. Right. Uh, so, you know, you've got one source that has God inspiring Abraham's kidneys to be his rabbis and teach him the law. And kidneys might be idiomatic for heart. Uh, that's the right. Genesis Apocryphon at Qumran. You've got others like Jubilees where God sends an angel to teach Abraham Hebrew so that he and the patriarchs can keep a, a kosher table during their lifetime. But there's this assumption where they're reading back elements of their time, the prospect of law-keeping onto Abraham. It's mm. so interesting to me that even though they're doing that, they are not they are not reading back onto him the assumption that the culture around him was monotheistic. So wait, they, right. these Jewish writers uh, say and, that an uh, angel like came to Abraham and like taught him like a language that like didn't exist yet or wasn't fully matured yet. Yeah, that's Jubilees, man. It's all there. Yeah. Not not to speak down to uh, ancient Jewish writers, but I, 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 I call that questionable, man. Uh, well, but, but it's interesting. So for the things that they do that on, it's interesting for the things they don't do that on, is my point. And mm. all of them, you know, in fact, you have, because the, they dance around this question of why did God choose Abraham? And, and in some Jewish writings, there's the sense in which Abraham, in some sense, chose God first. Abraham was the one who rejects uh, in some yeah, of those we writings. Yeah, we talked about that a few yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, we, we did. Yeah. Uh, who, who rejects the polytheistic context around him. But in other words, all the writers, even those later writers, assume that that context was there. And if that context was there, not only would there have been a polytheistic context, there would have been elements of that that had permeated the culture. And, and one of the things that we we sometimes find surprises in Scripture because uh, just like us, we we don't go out of our way to express aspects of American culture. We assume them; they're natural to us. And so there's there's sometimes some interesting things lurking when uh, cultural defaults of biblical times and places are right there in the text, but maybe a little bit more foreign to us. Is that is that fair? You know, Nathan, I think we also do that in you know Christian interpretation too, even in the New Testament, especially when it comes to systematized theology, which can be a very helpful tool, but there is this temptation, even on the subject of God, that every everywhere you find God in the Bible, you have to somehow find everything about God there. And it's like everything we know about God from systematic theology has to be loaded into the story that we're reading and forgetting that, as you pointed out last week in the discussion, like the divinity of Christ was something that they wrestled with for centuries, like, uh, you know, 
until the Nicene Creed. And it's not that Jesus was not defined, but there wasn't a systematized understanding of that because the real time care, they're trying to figure this out. They don't know what we know. Well, that, and, yeah, they're, 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 to your point, they're moving forward on a spectrum. Okay. We know is within Judaism, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So how, how do we, for them in real time, how do we reconcile the staunch monotheism, one God with, oh, and there's a guy, Jesus, who's doing all the stuff that that God does. And they're coming, again, right. they're coming out of uh, uh, an Old Testament period in which no one is able to look on God directly. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, this, you know, goes back to that angel of the Lord episode. Um, so what do you do? Uh, how, how do you tease out the incarnation? Uh, and, it, and it takes some time. Uh, again, they have a remarkably high view, uh, an orthodox view uh, of Jesus remarkably early. Um, mm. but, but it is important that you're not seeing overt uses of words like Trinity until the third century, uh, Tertullian's Tractate on Baptism. It, right. it is interesting that they haven't teased out and, and universally uh, accepted uh, you know, uh, concepts, like, concepts like homo usios, uh, that the son is uh, the same substance as the father until later. You don't see that in the because they have to, they have to, um, they have to tease out the implications of the revelation they've received, and and mm. and so to your point, we are really bad about taking much later theological um, concepts, even if they're there in Nietzsche, and reading that awareness all the way back onto biblical characters, or just giving the biblical characters superhero powers, so, so to speak, or superhuman powers that they somehow, because they were extra special people of God, they just knew, or, you know, in, in some way, God had revealed this through the kidneys or an angel or something, because it has to be that way, because Abraham has to understand it the way we understand it, because we know how it's meant to be understood because of later revelation. And what the point that we have revisited again and again in this podcast is as we're tracing the dots through this story, one of the things that we try to capture is what does this stuff mean to them? And, and how would a hearer have interpreted what was said? Or how would a character within the story have interpreted what was said based on the revelation available at that time? Of course, we don't know what's in the white space. We don't know if there were angelic visitations. We don't know if there were other writings that we don't know about, but, but how would they have interpreted this based on their time in the history of, of Revelation? And that's really what we're going to look at today as it pertains to a totally non-controversial topic about the land and what the land promise is and how would have Abraham, how would Abraham have related to this whole idea of a land promise. So this is going to take several episodes to do this. Surprise. But, um, th this is our, our, our first attempt to it, uh, to by the way, the I, topic I, I today. I don't feel like we've tackled something as big as making the land promise exciting as since we did the genealogy stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what though? Like the metrics clear, like over and over again, show that those genealogies episodes are like some of our most popular. So, so you know somewhere, somewhere out there, somewhere you out there, know. somewhere out there, there's a faithful listener saying, finally, the land promise. 
<laughs> there you go. So, Gandalf, why don't you go ahead and read 17, 3 through 8. And okay. as Gandalf is reading, listener, is, especially if you've listened to our podcast along the way, be thinking about what would have made sense to Abraham at the time. Keep in mind, Abraham doesn't have Exodus through Revelation. In fact, Abraham, at this point, doesn't even have the rest of Genesis. Mm. What what does this mean to him in his day and time? This is like that exercise in English class where someone writes a sentence and someone tries to anticipate what they're going and they try to write the next sentence in the story. Mm. Oh, yeah. And then, you, and then you get the story at the end of this composite and it's built on everyone's expectations and it it doesn't always turn out the way that anyone would have expected it to. Um, <laughs> so this is Abraham living this stuff in real time, is what we're saying. Mm. Go ahead. Unless right. it's a Disney princess film, because they all turn out the same. <laughs> Ooh, and that may be the most controversial take you've ever had, Matt. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's move on here. <laughs> all right, this is Genesis 17, 3 through 8, as always, from the ESV. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there it is, the land promise. And it, this is not the only place it's mentioned, but this is an assurance that we have from God that he is going to give the land to Abraham. So here's my question. Uh, Nathan, how do we get into Abraham's world? How would he have processed this? I want, I want to, bri I want to bridge this concept. Um, one thing that we have talked about that I think is a good segue of sorts in, in the podcast already is that for most peoples in the ancient world, there was the concept that their God was geographically limited, right? Fair, like in other words, a God has a certain territory entrusted to him or her, and that's the space in which that God can be sovereign or powerful. And the Bible will ultimately challenge this idea with a God who's sovereign all of it because he's he's one of a kind, right? Right. Um, hmm. But we sometimes limit that to the here and now. In the ancient world, that was not just the here and now. It wasn't just happen what the God wasn't just sovereign over a territory while someone lived. The God was sovereign over a territory when someone died. That's right. And, and so God is making Abraham a promise about land staying in the family, not just during Abraham's lifetime, but after it. Right. Um, so, and so, and so it is interesting. Uh, I have learned in the past hour um, it is interesting how that butts up against some of the cultural assumptions um, from places like Mesopotamia uh, and Samaria that you see in the ancient world uh, that, that, again, had to have been in Abraham's wheelhouse. Yeah, we looked at those uh, in our pre-conversation that in the Mesopotamian worldview is that upon death, the, the human would 
descend into the netherworld, which is below the land of the living. But then there was an obligation of sorts between the living or a relationship between the living and the dead and, and an obligation parts of, for parts the, of this. Parts of this were brand new to me. Go ahead. Yeah, an obligation for the living to care for the dead. That's where we hear about drink offerings and food offerings, not to a deity, but providing ancestors with food, things like that, providing ancestors with drink. It's this whole idea of caring for them because in the netherworld, these things are not accessible. And if they do not, if they are not provided these things by the living, they will not be able to sustain themselves in the realm of the dead. Is so, that, is go ahead. that where we get, is that where we get phrases like pouring one out? Cause like, you know, after a battle, they like pour out all their drinks or whatever, because they're like having to send it on down to everyone who like died. I, I can't say that definitively, but I, I would imagine that that's, there's some connection to that. It would, it would be congruent with that. Or, you know, you did have feasts for the dead in the ancient world. Right. And that was sometimes linked with battle. Uh, so, and I guess the... I have heard of like, they loaded up like Pharaoh's coffins and stuff with like massive amounts of treasure and wealth and stuff. I guess that makes sense. And food. And food. Yeah. And it, food. It, and this, and this is, uh, you know, Matt and I were talking about this and one of the things that was interesting to me that I'd never considered Matt enlightened me on this within the last hour is that this might've been tied in with the law of primogeniture is this, this, the cultural custom, which by the way, to my knowledge, this is never, you see several passages that highlight this as a cultural default, but I can't think of a passage that establishes this as a commandment or practice. In other words, this is something they were doing on the basis of what was common in their world. Is that which fair? Is, yeah. Which is the right of the first yeah, born son. Which is the firstborn son getting a double portion of the inheritance. Uh, right. It's interesting. We talked about Jacob and Esau, Matt and I did, about how the, the blessing and the birthright are two different things. Uh, and we'll get we'll get to that more later. But but Matt was sharing and and, and gave me uh, a little bit of reading to do real quick um, about how the primogeniture and the older son getting a double portion of the inheritance might be because it would be the older son who would be entrusted in caring for the ancestors after death. He would need those resources to care for the ancestors. Does that make sense, Gandalf? Oh, uh, I yeah. It's like man, I got to load up my most res my oldest most responsible son with this task. Because I don't um, want him to mess up and not and, go starving in the netherworld. So, and, and, so, it, it, and it does raise, I mean, it, uh, not to drive the episode, but it does raise several questions. Like, I think of the end of Genesis, uh, it's very important for Joseph. Uh, and again, please don't hear us saying we're reading all of this theology on top of the biblical characters. We're just looking for points of interaction. Uh, uh, it is interesting that jo Joseph is very adamant that his bones be brought back to the promised land. So, like, for instance, in, in New Testament theology, we would just say, well, Joseph is with the Lord. Why does that even matter? Why is it so important to Joseph to have his bones taken back to the land of his forefathers? Well, and this is, I mean, this is God's language to Abraham in uh, Genesis 15, 15, isn't it? Where he says, you know, and this is God talking about the context of the sojourning and the, his descendants inheriting the land. It's like, Abraham, you're going to go be with your fathers. Right. Um, mm. And it's, it's just not, it's just not outlined as much as you get upon further revelation. So um, we've, we've talked about Abraham having the problem of not having a son because without a son, 
you know, Eliezer of Damascus, our boy back there from, you know, Genesis 15, but Eliezer of Damascus was two, going to two be... Whole, two whole chapters and 40 episodes ago. That's right. <laughs> was going to be the inheritor. So the assumption would be, is, is Eliezer of Damascus going to care for me like my son would care for me? Uh-oh. Probably well, not. Well, and, and, and since we're going back to Genesis 15, right after God reiterates the offspring promise, the very next thing is what? The land I, promise. The land promise. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Um, mm. Because not only does Abraham not yet have the child of promise, he also doesn't have the land of promise. Right. That's where I was going. We often focus on the whole, he needed a kid. But he also, in the ancient Mesopotamian framework, he also needed a land. Because with without these two things, um, their worldview at least, and, you know, how much of this was influenced in Abraham's thinking, you know, we don't know. But there was no future for him. And... And God was offering him a future that he could not yet see, a land that was currently occupied that God was promising him possession of, and then a child that was currently non-existent. Yeah, you made the point to me. I had never considered this. I should have because I spent a lot of time reading about Abraham. Um, but the only portion of the land that Abraham possesses at the time of his death is what? Oh, the, the burial grounds for Sarah. That he purchases. Right. Uh, and and it's, it's interesting that he buys a place for burial to today's <laughs> passage. I think that's interesting. That is interesting to me because it's, you know, I'm going to give you this land, but the only part of that that Abram, you know, took possession of in his life was the part he bought. Yeah. And he bought a part specifically for what happens after death. So uh, that is interesting to me that the the... This, as as I mentioned beforehand, God's beginning of the land promise was an outworking of what God did with the cemetery. And as, I guess that's all God needs. L um, little, little New Testament bridge there. Yeah, that's right. Meanwhile, gra right. Graves into Gardens started playing in the background of the episode. <laughs> uh, uh, that's incorrect. Uh, copyright infringement. Oh, yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, like, this belief about having to, like retain sustenance after death is why there's lots of like food imagery about like there's like heaven associated with food imagery later on in the bible as like you know when you die and go to be with god you don't have to worry about like food coming from earth anymore uh well and, and again what i do want to reiterate we are not we are not we are not we are not saying that the biblical characters' beliefs about death and afterlife were one and the same with the culture around them, but that mm. would but that would have been the context for interacting. In other words, everyone would say, of course, the point of divine revelation was not God's truth interacting with twenty first century Western Christian understandings as the default. Right? We would affirm. Yeah. We would affirm that it would it would it would surprise us. If we read Genesis and we're like, man, this sounds like Thomas Paine or Thomas Jefferson, you know what I'm saying? Um, right. But I'm saying just because they they not only didn't have our cultural defaults, they did have their cultural defaults. 
and part of the biblical interpretation is is seeing where biblical ref uh will where biblical revelation interacts with their default cultural expectation um and so i do i do think that's interesting regarding the land especially that the land is repeatedly uh reiterated alongside discussions of of the the heir of promise the child of promise and again surprise surprise in the in the chapter right after um uh, you know, this this ultimate chapter of Abraham and Isaac going up uh, the mountain, the Akedah in Genesis 22. What happens in Genesis 23? Sarah dies and is buried. <laughs> so if we're putting ourselves in the context of the ancient person, like God is addressing from the worldview, of at least Mesopotamia, and how much of that is influencing Abraham, we don't know. But God is addressing both needs. He's addressing the firstborn child problem of who's going to care for me and who's going to care for my name as it's left behind. And then he's also addressing the whole land issue because a, a man without a land is essentially a man without a family. Um, so it, it reminds me, did you all ever see the, uh, the Spider-Man series? I, I know you did. It was the Tobey Maguire, the first, the first the, trilogy. The best, the, the best trilogy. Yeah. I really, yeah, I really liked that one in the first movie. Where he's, he's trying to figure out how to impress Mary Jane. And he he gets in his mind that, you know, in order to impress, you know, Mary Jane, he has to be a cool guy. And to be a cool guy, he has to have a cool car. And mm -hmm. so he has to address all of these things in order for him to be who he wants to be. So I think it's maybe lost upon us that I think ancient men and ancient women thought about this, and we just don't. Like the, the land idea is not important to us because we're living post New Testament and we understand that differently. And the whole, um, firstborn idea, again, it's, it's not important to us because we, we live now, you know, post New Testament. Well, well, there is the concept. I mean, this is certainly not the whole mythos on it, but this is not entirely removed from things like decoration day that kind of morphs into Memorial day. Mm-hmm where you honor like in the modern area era, certainly the, the modern default is not Mesopotamian mythology, but in the right. modern era, it is important for family and community to tend to, to decorate, to upkeep the grave. In other words, that person is done living in this plane in a very real sense. And yet there is an importance to family, to community, to upkeeping the grave. Right. Uh, I mm -hmm. mean, that's, that's a little bit of a modern bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, to, to your to your point, in the biblical world, we don't know how much of this bleeds over to Abraham. Absolutely, but in their world, having a place to be buried without having a without having a people to tend your grave would have been disaster. Having people to tend to your uh, memory without having a place for them to do it would have been a disaster. Um, by the way, this is, uh, let's talk about Holy city as we're winding down. Uh, what, what do you got going on in the Kidron Valley? <laughs> why, yeah. why is that prime real estate for being buried? So are you speaking of like the, the, the sepulchers there that all of the, the burial boxes that sit there on the hillside? Yeah. To the temple. Well, I think it's, it's tapping into a hope. It's that. There is something about that land that is going to be important in the future, and it's tapping into that. 
So, yeah, so this is uh, Kidron Valley uh, for listeners. If you're not super familiar with the Old Testament, this is where uh, King Jehoshaphat is thought to have defeated, overthrown Israel's enemies. This is in Second Chronicles 20. Um, King David uh, fled through the Kidron Valley uh, during the rebellion uh, of Absalom. Uh, but what I'm referring to is uh, this uh, concept in the prophet Joel, who mentions that God will assemble all the nations in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. In other words, they want to be buried, not just in a place of past significance. They want to be buried in a place of future significance. Uh, and I think yeah. that's a little, does that make sense, Matt? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, tra- um, I'm tracking with you. And And God is making Abraham promises that are not just like, oh, hey, this was a particularly meaningful place in your sojourning. No, this is not just a place of past significance. This is a place of future significance. Uh, and, and this is not just a people of past significance. It's a people of future significance. Um, anyway. And do you think that that's just lost on us? Because when we think of death, we just think of heaven. Well, a lot of it was lost on me till about an hour ago. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it, they, they, they clearly saw land as more important than just real estate. But, uh, but it's one of the, when, yeah, that's it. When, when you started unpacking some of it, it, it kind of, you know, pinballed around in my head with a few other things that, that made more sense of them, especially the primogeniture thing. Mm. Talking um, about, uh, talking about land, Matt, um, I know you'll get this reference, but what is Jerusalem worth? Uh, nothing. And then at the same time, everything, everything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Kingdom of Heaven, great movie. But you know what's also great? The Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. And we would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed. And it helps not just us and, you know, getting more notoriety in the algorithm, but it helps you because it gives you a notification every Tuesday morning when we drop a new episode. So if you want to keep hearing about how the these words, they have meant something to the people who were living them, I guarantee you we'll be back next Thursday with more of that as we explore the greatest narrative. So until then, we'll see you and you guys have a great week. See you next time. Shalom. Welcome back, listener, to episode... Oh, I did it again. Hold up. I'm going to restart.